back to the Cattle Menu Podcast. I'm Caroline Rose, the founder and CEO of K-Rose Company and Cattle Menu. Thank you for joining us on this episode. I'm excited to bring you these conversations each week filled with relatable advice and techniques you can take back to your operation. It's my mission to make sure that we can ranch in the next generation. Make sure and subscribe where you're listening so you never miss a new episode. On today's episode of the Kettle Menu Podcast, I have Brian joining us. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to do it today. Of course. Why don't you start and just tell us a little bit about how you're involved in the agriculture industry and some things you're up to these days. How I'm involved in agriculture. Okay. So when we use the terms farmers and ranchers, some people kind of get up in arms, right? They're like, well, I'm not a farmer, by gosh, I don't have a tractor. Well, I'm not a rancher because I don't have any cows. Okay, fine. Some of those distinctions matter a little bit less. I prefer to think of myself more as a land manager because the primary asset that I have is the land and the land needs to be managed appropriately no matter what context you're in. And the tools I have available are cattle. What an interesting way to think about it. Have you, like, is that a generational thought or is that something that kind of you brought to the table in a multi-generational operation? Interesting question. And it's, it's probably kind of hard to distinguish from the two when you've grown up in it like I have. So my dad took over this ranch in 1985. In 1988, he went to a little um, week-long school called Ranching for Profit, if you've ever heard of that one. And that kind of changed how he did business and changed how he looked at things. He also started looking at a holistic management by Alan Savory. So I was exposed to those concepts at a very young age. We didn't watch the NFR. We watched Nova and PBS. Okay. That, that's what went on at my house. We didn't talk about the latest horse genetics. We talked about grass. We talked about how to run water lines and where he was going to put tanks and build ponds and, and cut trees. So that's kind of what I grew up around. And remember this is 1985. And if you think the economy and interest rates are bad right now, they are nothing compared to what things were like in the mid eighties. So when, so when he was getting his start and I didn't really realize this until the last couple of years, put it all together, maybe a little slow, but interest rates were super high. And that's, that's probably really one of the big reasons why he chose to structure his business the way he did and having a custom grazing business rather than having a cattle business on a land asset that he thought that he needed to invest in first before he went out and bought cows. One of the best things that I think ranching for profit brings to the table, and people can argue all day about whether the practices are a hundred percent, you know, what every operation t- should do and they really make ranching look like a business. And the fact that a lot of ranches are run more like a lifestyle versus a business, I think is one of the biggest issues in agriculture. I think if you want to have a ranch for a lifestyle because you want to be a cowboy, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Just pay your bills and don't sell your cows at a loss. Like that, just that helps the rest of us out. Okay. And maybe take care of your fences and your invasive trees and, you know, don't do things that are, and screw up the creek for your neighbor. You know, please don't do that. Other than that, if you want to just have the lifestyle, have the lifestyle. 
that's fine. There's always been people like that. And maybe it's a good opportunity to say something. I talk a lot about like the the corporate takeover of ranching and that we're losing that we're losing the owner operators. The truth is, maybe we never really had that many of them to begin with. I think the truth is that, you know, corporations have been involved in ranching a lot longer than we think they have, and we just have this romanticized ideal from Hollywood. Anyway. No, I think you're right. And I think part of the reason why we see such a more visual shift going from kind of what we consider owner operators to more corporations is because there has been generations of owner operators that are not profitable and yet they have continued in business. And one of the things that I always kind of get a little, people get a little touchy when I talk about is when the restaurant down the street goes out of business because their food's terrible, none of us feel terrible. But when a ranch has to sell because they're not profitable, there's all this emotional ties to it. And we've done that to ourselves as an industry. Yeah, we have. 100%. And a lot of times, I think the reasons ranches fail or have to sell often has nothing to do with, with what anybody outside of, of that family unit or that, that corporate ownership structure, outside of what they think. Nobody else really has any idea why the operation failed other than the people that are in it. And sometimes it's sad. Sometimes you could tell a couple years ahead of time that <laughs> somebody's kind of maybe having a little bit of trouble. And, you know, it, it's even better when you see an operation that's headed the wrong direction, make a turnaround. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So talk a little bit about what you guys are doing on your operation that might look a little different than some other operations. Ooh, well, for starters, I have a lot of fences. I move cows a lot. So the ranch is about 7,000 acres and it's broken up basically into three almost equal parts by blacktop roads. And when you've got average of 400 semis a day going by at 70 miles an hour, there's a manpower requirement to getting across the road with cattle, right? You know, especially with the sizable herd. And you know, one of the things that I like to, that I like to say and that, you know, that the school that shall not be named likes to teach is put everything in one herd. Great. For me, moving a hundred or 200 across the highway when they're well-trained, that's probably not too much of an issue. But if I was to put everything in one herd, like not even counting the water infrastructure, I would need to improve. But if I put everything in one herd, you know, we're talking like 2,500 to 3,000 head is what I could run on like a 90, 120 day season. Yeah, I'm not going to do that by myself. You know, that's calling a cowboy crew. And day help isn't getting any cheaper in this part of the world. I don't think it is in yours either or anybody else that's listening to this. You know, you got to call somebody to come out and do an hour of work. He's going to get at least a half a day's wage, right? So doing things like that, I kind of got to make a sacrifice and say, okay, I'll just run it as three independent units. So there's a lot of days that I will have to go move three sets of cows. And that's not a big deal. I mean, after you do it for about, uh, you can teach a cow how to do anything and showing it to him seven to 14 times and being consistent about it. So after I've got, you know, when customer cattle come in, yeah, May and June, sometimes a little bit rough, but by mid June, everything figures out. 
what to do when I come to the pasture, when I honk, when to ignore me, when to follow me, and how to respect the electric fences. And life gets really easy after that. You know, by like August, September, there's a lot of times I just kind of go out and open a gate and yell, you know, come on girls. And they just kind of run up and go through the gate, put their heads down and go back to work. Are you primarily working for one customer or do you have multiple customers? I have multiple customers. Um, I'm trying to build a couple long-term strategic partnerships. The customers that I have, I can't say enough good things about them and doing business with them. All three of them are, are just absolutely fantastic cattlemen. They're great businessmen. They're, they're good to do business with. Uh, people I've done business in the past with, nothing against them, just going a different direction. One gentleman's been with me basically 14 years. I mean, we also happen to share five miles of fence. You know, our, our fathers ran cattle together out here in the 90s. We've met. Okay. <laughs> we work well together. The other two, one guy's been with me now for four years. Um, and I kept a set of his cows for two and a half years, overwintered him twice, and they just left. Uh, the other guy we've just started building a partnership with. And in the process of, of dispersing my herd, he's ended up bought it. He bought the younger end of, of everything. And, and the, he got, he wanted first cut on my heifers. So he took first cut of the heifers too. And you might've mentioned this, but is this primarily like bread cows or yearlings or a little combination? As far as on a take-in basis, I'm not real picky. I'll make a pitch, you know, kind of somewhere in January to early March timeframe based on how much moisture and how much stockpile I've got. I'll say, what do you think about this many pounds of animals for this many days? And they'll come back and say, what do you think about cows? What do you think about heifers? What do you think about a, a heifer development program? We did a replacement heifer deal two years in a row. That was, that worked really well. We've done some cows. It's been a while since I've done yearlings. Doing yearlings, let's just say, you know, okay, I, I'm in the Red Hills of Kansas. So I'm like halfway east, west, right down against the Oklahoma line. A lot of people think that, you know, if you're not in the Flint Hills, there's no such thing as good grass. Well, they're wrong. And we have the same grass as they do in the Flint Hills. I think we have better soil, deeper soil. The thing that we don't have that the Flint Hills does is a longstanding burning culture. We're trying to get our burning culture rebuilt. So what I'm getting at is, unless I want to do a bunch of burning, every year, which I'm moving back towards that. I haven't done, haven't burned anything on the ranch since the whole thing burned up in 2016, which, you know, that's like probably two, three other whole episodes right there. It's difficult to get meaningful gains that any commercial guy is going to be looking for on a yearling animal. I mean, pound, pound and a quarter a day is about the best we're going to do without burning. With burning, you know, that that's going to get, I don't know how good we could get it now. And that, that's just the reality of it. It's easier for me to take in cows, even though it is a little bit longer season, because cows generally stay where they're put. I mean, <laughs> especially older cows, they've had, they've had the stupid worked out of them already and, you know, the stupid cold out of the herd. So older cows are generally easier and that's generally what I would prefer. And I don't mind calving them out. People say, oh, th those baby calves won't move. Uh, I will... 
a, a mom will get up a one hour old calf and move it. That's what they're supposed to do. Like they're supposed to get up and move. That's what mom's that that's mom's job. Like if you're worried about your mom running off, leaving your calf behind any other pasture, you get kind of a crappy mom. I mean, a good mom will get that calf up and take her with him. I think this is an area of the industry. A lot of people, especially what I call kind of change makers. So either first generations getting involved or people who are taking over an operation and one might not have the cash, especially with interest rates, right? To go and buy their own set of cows this year, which is not something I recommend. So I think that's a smart move, but it's always kind of this barrier to entry. So how do you get into running someone else's cows do you have a contract? Is that a handshake? What are some do's and don'ts? Like talk us through someone who's never done this before and sees an opportunity as a way to get in the industry without writing a $500,000 check, which it would take today. Well, the, there, I think there's a lot of guys out there that have literally bootstrapped with owning nothing. Like they've got gone out and leased land, got somebody else's cattle on a custom grazing type scenario and gone and leased a pickup and leased a trailer and operated a custom grazing business with literally zero owned assets. Like, do you know what, how great that makes your balance sheet look when you don't own anything? That's it, kind of nice. And you, you just have a bunch of lease payments, which, you know, of course, have their own tax benefits. So distilling down the last, I don't know, 160, 180 some podcast episodes, recordings, there's unused land everywhere. There's five acre corners here. There's five acre corners there. And okay, I get this is cattleman you. Sheep make more money. I'm not going to go get sheep tomorrow, okay? <laughs> sheep make more money, but that needs to be said, okay? And maybe, maybe your niche on these small unoccupied properties is in a small ruminant rather than a large ruminant because it, I mean, it just takes less space for sheep and goats than it does for cows. Take, you know, they're lighter on infrastructure. They take less water. Anyway, there's unused land everywhere and make a scene. Like if you're going to do something out of the ordinary, you know, if you're going to try to put 20 cows on a postage stamp and the grazing plan that you develop requires you to move them four times a day, do it next to a highway. Wear flashy clothes while you're doing it. Maybe big silly hat with a feather in it. Just get people to notice you more and notice what you're doing and start asking questions about why are you moving your cows four times a day? Well, I move them four times a day because if I move them four times a day, they're grazing shoulder to shoulder and they're either eating it, stepping on it, peeing on it, pooping on it, or laying on it. Every single plant's getting, getting impacted. And that takes your grazing efficiency way up. excited to announce our first ever She's a Hand Ranch Camp Horseback Edition. On June 14th through 16th, we'll be hosting 14 women to cultivate their cattle handling skills from horseback. We'll spend one day working in the arena, one day in the backgrounding lot, and one day gathering cattle in summer country. Attendees will provide their own horses and tack. We're accepting applications now through the form linked below. Once your application has been reviewed and accepted, you will have 48 hours to secure your spot. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about utilizing land that you maybe have a lease on with someone else's cattle. 
We, for the first time, have sent cattle to California from Montana to run on a lease that I am pretty sure the guy just has a lease on. I don't think he owns the land, but he had the right contacts. He called the right person. And we've sent, I think, four truckloads down there. And it was just in an ironic sense that my brother and I happened to be down in California for a family event. And we ran over and looked at the the lease and it was exactly what we signed up for. Our cattle are out there with a fresh brand on them, our brand. And it's working really well. I mean, it's a win for us. I'm sure it's a win for him. It's a full care deal and paid on the gain. And, you know, we're going to get them back just in time for summer in Montana. And you just have to really be willing to think outside the box. And that's one of the things we talk about in Cattleman U. But if we, you know, if we try to do what's always been done, this would not even be really a conversation. Seven most dangerous words in agriculture. We have always done it this way. Gosh, we do that about everything, right? We have to get out of that mentality some point. Yes. And to some to some degree, there's a value to that. But it, it's also acting as a, a they're chains. They're also chains in most cases holding us back from making meaningful forward progress or adopting any sort of change. There's a lot of things dad did that I wouldn't do <laughs> again. And he's even said that himself. And I'm not going to say that if I started over in 1985 with what he had, I would have done any better of a job. I'm just happy to be able to take what he's done and try to continue on and keep improving the land and trying to be a leader in the community and show what a good looking ranch looks like. Yeah. It's this balance between respect of the effort and kind of the grit that the generation above us put in, but also saying it has to look a little different if we want the next generation to be on the operation. And it's this really fine balance because I'm a third generation rancher and it's interesting watching, you know, even just the growth in my dad since I came back, which was nine years ago to the operation and how much it changes and how much we just have to kind of ebb and flow, right? We can't say anything. One of my most famous sayings that I say a lot on the podcast is there's a lot of gray between black and white. And we forget that, that there's all these different shades of gray um, and it's all a journey. But it's interesting in agriculture because we do have that legacy mentality. And I can almost guarantee that all the listeners who are on an operation are somehow thinking about the next generation, even if that generation is not a thing. It's this, we don't want this land to be lost or to be taken out of agriculture. And the grazing management that you do kind of allows the next generation to have some security and some options when they get back to the operation. So talk a little bit about what that legacy thought process looks like in your guys' situation. That's interesting. We've been down this road of me taking over the operation and management of the ranch for uh, 10 years, basically. It's It's been a little over 10 years since he's been, you know, winding down his involvement. And like I mentioned, after the wildfire in 2016, he put in a lot of work that that summer helping me get fences rebuilt. And 
after that, he kind of said, that, that was it. That was a lot. I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. And I said, that's fine. You shouldn't have to. I spent the next two years running machinery, clearing up the, the dead, burned up trees from that wildfire because I've lived here long enough. I've driven around this area long enough and observed how fire change, how fire changes it long enough. I knew what was going to happen to a lot of my landscape if I didn't do anything. Like cedar trees, like, you know, when they fall down, they just kind of, they all tangle together like pickup sticks and then cattle definitely won't go in there. And I, I thought this is such a golden opportunity. All of these trees are dead. They're all dead. I can see everything now. I can get in there and I can work. So I leased an excavator and I bought a big mulcher head to put on it. And I spent two years running this thing. I ran 850 hours in two years. And I just went up and down canyons, just up and down canyons. I'm not sure. I don't even think I know how to operate an excavator on a flat slope. I don't know if I would know what that feels like because I spent so much time, you know, 20 to between 20 and 30 degrees looking downhill, trying to work underneath my feet. Positives of that is now when I'm starting to cross fence the ranch even more. I don't have to go, I don't have to take a chainsaw with me and hack through trees to get there, hack through all these cedar trees. And my creeks have so much more water in them and not just the main creek or the, the couple main creeks on the ranch, all the side canyons, almost all of them now, well, probably right now since we just got an inch of rain, but before the drought hit. Even through 2020 and 2021, a lot of those canyons were still running water, even though we were in a D1, D2 drought going into late 2021. We were in a D1 drought, and I was still having creeks that had never run water before that running water. Why? Because I took an excavator up there and I got rid of all the trees in there. So I've got all this great running water now, and I'm going to say a word, and, and probably about half your listeners are going to click off or say, well, this guy definitely doesn't know what he's talking about. But uh, I have at least two beaver colonies on the ranch right now. And they're both on the creek on the east side. And it's been so cool. It, it was nice through the drought to be able to go down there and see that creek full of water and see those beaver ponds just absolutely full of water. There's more, there's so much water in that creek I, you wouldn't even believe it if I told you what the difference is in uh, like 34 years now of the history of my firsthand observations of that spot in the creek, of how much, how much different it is. When I was a kid, I had this little itty-bitty four-wheeler. Right? I think it was a 70cc Honda. And I could ride right across where these beaver dams are and like not even really worry about getting stuck in the mud. Okay? That was mid-80s, mid-late 80s. Fast forward to now, there's no power in the universe that would force me to drive a side-by-side through there. Because what it is now, I would have to go through about 20 to 30 foot of marsh, okay, that the beaver have created because they've dammed up the main channel so much, it's going so far around to the side, it's creating a marshland. And then once I finally got to the water, it's about six feet wide and about two and a half feet deep. 
So we're not going through there. <laughs> we'll just go around. The state built a really nice bridge down on the highway. We'll just go down there and use that. So it, it, through the drought, if I ever had a problem with a water system, anything would have gone any wrong with any of my pumping or piping storage systems. I always have a creek or a pond I can go to. And back in the spring, before it started raining, the ponds were looking really, really bad. But that creek, it was, it was just chock full because those beavers were down there. Yeah. And so what do you think, like in 30 years from today, what's that going to look like? Oh gosh. As long as the trend continues and I can continue to, you know, go after the isolated pockets where I still have some trees that I couldn't get to with, with machinery. Cause you know, when it gets to about 35 degrees, those things don't like to stay on the ground anymore. They like to tip over. So that was my limit. So there's a bunch of work that I still have to do with with a chainsaw, with a drip torch, that's fine. Whatever. I'm still young. I'm only 45. I've got plenty of time. You know, I need to do something outside. So why not with a chainsaw? Get after some of those areas. What I hope will happen is the beavers will keep moving in. Maybe one or two more colonies will establish on that main creek and they'll just keep, they'll just keep raising up the level, just keep building up their dams and keep raising that water level up making the creek wider and wider and wider, store more water. And that raises the water table in, in all of the soil. And if the soil's more moist, probably going to grow more grass. So it's kind of a win for everybody. Yeah. And it gives you so much more flexibility because you have not, you know, pigeonholed yourself into being a traditional cow-calf producer where you have a, the same hundred cows on the land now you're able to kind of expand and it's like the ranch is your oyster again. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of merit to what you're saying. And I, I would say this. So somebody that has a cow herd that wants to maintain their cow herd. Fine. You can keep your cows. I can tell you to get rid of them. But what it will tell you is if you have all your cows in a 2000 acre pasture and they live there all year, I'll tell you, if you cut that into like eight or 16 or 32 or like 48 pieces, you could run a whole bunch more cows. And if you're worried about ever running out of grass, you only run a percentage of your maximum carrying capacity of your own herd, say 50%. Okay. So 50% of the grass is going to get eaten by my cows. 50% of the grass is going to get eaten by somebody else's cows. If it doesn't rain, other people's cows get to go home and your cows still have plenty to eat. Then you don't have to buy expensive hay in a drought. Yeah. I like that plan. What makes you the most excited about the future on your guys' operation? I don't know. Can we pass? <laughs> or is that one of your lightning round questions? No, no, no. I'll tell you when it's the lightning round. Um, what I'm most excited for, I'm trying to get better at managing grass trying to get better, you know, trying to be a better stockman, always trying to be a better stockman and continuing to educate myself. You know, I, I'm trying to plan to hit 10 conferences and expos in 2024, a minimum of 10, maybe more like 12, just try to say, we'll just do around one a month, but there'll be some months there's like two or three, but we'll figure that out later. Uh, it's important to get out 
and and build your network, have conversations with new people, and expose yourself to new things and try new things. I've had a saying for quite a while. I started saying this when my dad kept asking me like every 30 seconds, how do you know that's going to work? How do you know that's going to work? I don't, dad. Everything's experimental. Are you sure that's going to work? Everything's experimental. Are you trying to find the right planner to start the new year with? Look no further. We have created the Cattle Menu Planner for ranch wives, mothers, and daughters who are looking for the perfect place to capture all of their thoughts throughout the year. Our planner is the perfect guide to help you get your operation started. In the Cattle Menu Planner Paving Your Path, you will create the foundation for your operation, set goals, and learn how to implement them. We've included our customer favorite blank calendar pages so you can start when you're ready. Join the waitlist today at cattlemenulive.com backslash planner. To get a sneak peek of some of the new sections in the planner, you can go to cattlemenulive.com backslash preview. So I didn't, I've talked about like moving your cattle four times a day. I've, I've done it. Okay. And I wasn't sure it was going to work here. Okay. And that, that's what everybody's reservation is. Well, that won't work here. We've tried that here. That won't work here. Well, okay. That's fine. It's also, it also works everywhere else that it's been tried honestly. So I thought, well, I've got this little pasture over here. Remember earlier I said the ranch is kind of broken up into three parts. Well, I also have this fourth orphan pasture that's on the other side of a dirt. It's across a dirt road from the rest of my south cell. That's not quite as problematic to get in and out of by yourself. You know, there's, there's gates like directly across. And if you really have to, you can set up panels and just do it. Been done. There were a couple of years that I skipped it because 2018, 2019, we had plenty of rain. Like, okay, whatever. We'll just skip those. Or, I'm sorry, 2017, 2018. We just skip them. Had plenty of rain. Didn't need the, didn't need those extra acres. We'll just stockpile some grass over there. Well, a friend of mine called me in 2019. He's like, Hey, I got like 120 pair. I need to do something with you got any room. And this gentleman being a really good friend and kind of a mentor to me, I thought, let me see what I can make work. So I really sharpened my pencil. And I put it down to it. And I said, you need a home for about 120 days. I can do 125 cows for 120 days in that 250-acre pasture. Here's the catch, Ed. I'm going to have to move them every day behind polywire. And if I have problems with any of them, you're going to have to come get them. If I can't get them trained, you're going to have to come get them. And he said, okay. I said, okay. And we shook hands. So he brought these cows and dumped them out. And, of course, like they came from wintering... They were Corrientes, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That changes it. (laughs) Okay. So he drops off 125 Coriante pairs that have been like, I went with him both times. He checked on these cows in the winter. Like they were like basically wild in a 700 acre pasture. He had leased like 30 miles away. Okay. So he went and gathered them and brought them to my place and they'd never seen a hot wire. Yeah, and I'm trying to put them on basically two acres, 125 pair on like two and a half acres, or maybe it was like four. I don't remember. It was less than four. So you get the idea, 125 pair and basically four acres. 
they were a little feisty for a while. And the first two weeks, I was there all day, every day. The day would start. I would just go out there, see how bad things were, shove them in a corner, build a hot wire around them, and then go pick up everything they tore up. Go build the next fence for where they needed to be that day. Leave. Come back at lunch and check. Repeat the process at lunch. Go do something else for a couple hours. Come back about four or five o'clock. Repeat the same process for the third time of the day. Go home. You get the idea. It got rapidly better after like, after a week. Like it just, it got rapidly better after a week. They figured it out. They stayed, they stayed behind the wire. They knew though, when I showed up first thing in the morning and I started running around, they all went and lined up by the gate. I just go over there and start rolling the fence up and they were over there and they put their heads right down and go right back to work. One of my favorite creators, Annie F. Downs, I don't know if you heard of her or ever listened to her podcast. She says, instead of setting goals, she does experiments. And she's talking mostly about, you know, like her house and her health and running her business. But she says a lot of times we say, for example, I'm going to walk 10,000 steps for 30 days. And she's like, then you, you mess up and immediately you're like, well, that was a failure. And she's like, no, let's rephrase it as what would happen if I did this for 30 days or I attempted this or I tried this. And the first time she told me that, just that mentality, it's almost like the freedom to mess up, but to know that, okay, if it didn't work, that's just one more step closer to figuring out something that does work. And I think we can be really hard on ourselves saying it has to work the first time. All our ideas have to be great ideas. But every time we make movement, we're learning something, right? Good or bad. We're saying this worked or this didn't work. And I think there's a lot more opportunities out there than we give ourselves credit for because we can kind of get stuck in this rut of it's almost like failure to action because we're afraid of taking the first step and not knowing if it's going to be successful when we just need to take some action and experiment and try some things around our operations. Fail is a four-letter word. F-A-I-L. First attempt in learning. You didn't fail. You learned something. And maybe you don't know what that is because you haven't had time to plunder the lesson yet. But all education is paid for. And whether that's paid for with a failure and a gain of experience or you write a check to Kansas State, all that education is paid for. And sometimes your tuition sucks and it's unexpected. It's just life teaching you something. So while you were, while you were talking, I kind of wanted to circle back and, and address something you said earlier. You were talking about opportunities. Since this is a Cattle and You podcast, I think there's tremendous upcoming opportunity in the future for new and upcoming cattlemen to graze cover crops and crop residue on land that's not currently being impacted by livestock. Are you, you're familiar with the six principles of soil health, right? Yep. Okay. One of them, and one of the big ones, is livestock. Like, you have to have livestock in that system. It's it's the symbiotic biology of the plants, the gut microbiomes in a ruminant animal, and the manure, 
and the microbes and the fungi and the soil. Like that, that's a link. It's all connected. We have to start returning more livestock back to our croplands. So I think that's where there's tremendous opportunities in the future for somebody that wants to get started in cattle without access to land, without access to much capital, and without access to livestock, right? Go make some of those deals. And it was just, I actually have somebody kind of specific in mind that's somewhat local to me that's got an arrangement like that. There's a, we call BTOs around here, big time operators. Like, okay, so this guy, um, not going to name any names for broadly, he's, he's up north of me. He does soil health stuff. And he's really getting into it, getting into biologicals. And he knew that he had to have livestock on the property. And he hates cows. Like, doesn't want anything to do with cows at all. Well, there's another gentleman in the community that, uh, let's say, their family has a less than sterling reputation and leave it at that. They, uh, they've made a deal. And now this other family is... They're working together, and I think they're in their second or third year of working together, and it's just a great relationship because the operator, the landowner, he's not charging a whole lot for access to land because he's getting so many fertility benefits from the cattle on the land and that biology and that fertility and the manure and the, and the nitrogen and the urine getting right back on the land in a bioavailable form rather than having to fly it on with the airplane or pump it on with irrigation or drive through a sprayer again. Right. So it's, it represents a tremendous cost savings in the, for the farmer to be able to have the cattle bring that fertility, do some of those fertility and biology tasks. It brings tremendous value to the cattlemen because they get to access an extremely high value feed source, like way better than native range. Right. I'm sure my cows would much rather go eat corn stalks and the weeds that are in the corn stalks than eat my, than eat the grass and the weeds that are in the pasture. Just saying it like it is. And you can get some really good gains on that stuff. And you find the right guy to work with. And instead of leaving ground fallow, he plants a cover crop for you. So it gets you more grazing days and gets him more fertility back in the soil. Keeps those living roots in the ground. Helps that moisture infiltration. All those good things that I love to talk about. I'm going to send this podcast um, anonymously to our neighbors. So we are located just north of Wheat, Montana. So Wheat, Montana, you know, that gives you an idea about the kind of crops grown in our area. And every time my dad and I drive from the sale barn, which is the neighbor to Wheat, Montana, to our ranch, you just pass all of these wheat fields, all of this cropland that will not let cattle graze. And every year my dad says, maybe this is the year. And he just keeps calling and saying, I would love to work with you. We have some opportunity for you and for us. And I think we are missing out. I mean, there's thousands of acres that is not utilizing that mutual beneficial partnership. And as a small producer, we could be utilizing our neighbors, but also as someone just entering the market, I think sometimes we pass and we just say, oh, they probably already know. They're not interested. Like we maybe wouldn't ask someone because we would be worried that they've already said no. Yeah. So I actually thought of a really kind of specific circumstance that happened this year. And it might be a long time before the world ever sets this up again. But somebody listening to this will encounter this scenario again. So 
down here, it warmed up and we just didn't get any moisture until late May. The wheat was basically like dwarf. I mean, it was 18 inches to two feet high in a lot of places. Tops, insurance came through and was like, well, the best of this crap is 25. The rest of it's not even really worth doing. Then it rained. So we got a huge flush of pigweeds, kosher, and crabgrass were the three things that everybody was fighting. So there's a guy that, that's got a farm field down on the south end of my ranch. His farm, his wheat, he's got, this year he had a field of oats and a field of wheat. Same thing happened to both of them, same kind of weeds. He sprayed them, which is another story for another time. So he came out and he had them sprayed by the spray plane. And then three days later, they were bailed. Okay. 40 miles south, good friend, client, Tim, not going to mention the last name. Don't even know if he listens to this, but he's a good friend of mine. He's a pretty cool dude. Tim had a neighbor or found a guy that had some failed wheat. The insurance said it was under 20 and it was full of crabgrass, pigweeds, and kosher. Spray plane couldn't get to it in time. So Tim said, I'll buy that. Called the chopper, like the forge chopper, silage chopper. He came out and chopped all of it for silage, put it in the bunk. What do you think it tested that for crude protein? It was good. I think it was like 14. It was four. I think it was at least 14%. It was good. It was really good. And he told me he had like $50 a ton in it. So there's opportunities like that. I mean, I can't imagine how many dollars my one neighbor spent to have those weeds sprayed. And my friend harvested those for forage to feed cows doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me of, of why people do some of the things they do. Yeah, but that's just, it's such a good story on just thinking outside the box, right? I mean. To be fair, Tim is around my age. I mean, and. He, he's not necessarily first generation, but you know, he's not six generations deep. The gentleman that had his field sprayed, uh, his family's been here at least as long as mine. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> I think he's my dad's age. He's like, yeah, I think he's basically my dad's age. He's 75 or 80. So it's not like he's going to change how he does anything. Right. Absolutely. Well, gosh, I probably could talk to you for another several hours on this topic because I don't think it's something we talk about a lot. Just in general, we don't hear a lot of people showing this side in agriculture or talking about this side. So I, I really appreciate your time today and we have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Shoot. They're pretty fun. Pretty easy. Pretty fun. Um, okay. Favorite cut of steak and how do you like to eat it? Ooh, ah, man, there's so many good ones. Uh, flat iron. Okay. On a barbecue? Yeah. Okay. On a barbecue. Well, a, a flat iron steak, usually on a flat top griddle. I don't, I'm not a charcoal guy. If you're uh, cooking it over a fire, cook it on a rock. <laughs> Better be a wood fire. Yeah. Absolutely. What is an ag industry topic that you think needs talked about more often? There's so many. The cop out, easy answer I'm going to go with today is going to be succession planning. No, what needs to be talked about more in ag today is how a proper nutrition 
And I was just thinking like, we don't really understand what that means for people anyway. Like, how are we going to start to understand what that means for bovines? Because all our nutritional advice for the last 40 years has been driving us to eat foods that are devoid of nutrition. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, absolutely. I think that's a great one. Not one that gets brought up much. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, Well, when you think about it, it's all the same problem. I mean, it's the food system. We're part of the food system. Even in the cattle business, we're part of that food system. And there's a lot of cattlemen that utilize the waste streams of products. They say, oh, well, otherwise it'd end up in a landfill. Well, how about we just stop making that crap to begin with? So true. Um, Okay. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Don't pee into the wind. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, Then this one is kind of fun. What is your non-career dream job? I still have fantasies every once in a while. I'll be a race car driver or a uh, test driver. I get to just just get to drive fast cars all day. Yeah, that's a perfect answer. Some people said like a server at a high-end steak restaurant, someone wanted to be a singer in Nashville. So anything that you just sometimes say, man, wouldn't it be fun to do that? It's something that like maxes out the fun meter but puts the stress meter on zero. (laughs) Absolutely. That's a great non-career job. Where can our listeners find you? Well, you can uh, send me a friend request on Facebook. If you want to be subjected to some of my random personal thoughts and libertarian propaganda, you can follow me on my Red Hills Rancher social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, X, Twitter, Rumble, YouTube, everywhere. Uh, my podcast is called Ranching Reboot. Uh, should be available wherever you listen to your podcast. I mean, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this one, you know what a podcast is and you know how to find them. So go look for mine. It's called Ranching Reboot. Perfect. We'll put all of those in the show notes for everyone to follow along. I really appreciate your time and your thoughts today. I think you um, are bringing a lot to the industry in the way that you are talking about these topics. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Aren't we doing this on my show like real soon? Yeah, next week. Awesome. Looking forward to it. So the table is well sure. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your time. Thanks again for listening to the Cattleman You podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. We are thankful to have you in your community. Like always, remember the grass is greener where you water it.